All right, when we ended last week, we read and studied through verse 31 of chapter 5, and um, that's kind of where we're going to pick back up. And in doing so, we finished by looking and talking very briefly about Levi, who was a tax collector. And uh, we were talking about him in the context of Jesus having speaking to the great multitudes who were following him, was really speaking to the individual. He was looking at the individual. He was interested in, 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 in the individual in order to call them out and have personal relationship with him. And, and in regards to Levi, the tax collector, we saw how his encounter with Jesus, it gave us this example of a new life. God, God came to Levi. Jesus came to Levi and said, come follow me. And in doing so, he was saying, you want to reset? You want to start over? You want to leave this life behind and have a new life in me? And, 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 and Levi's example is an example for us of the new life that we've received through Jesus Christ. And you know as well as I do, when you made that profession of faith in your heart or in front of others or however you did it, that in that moment, all things became new. You became a new creation. God forgave us of our sins. A sin debt was erased. A joy that and a peace that we had not found or, or what we had been looking for was given to us um, instantaneously, the burden was lifted. Do you remember that? That, that feeling of those, those, that burden, that great weight being lifted? And receiving that new life where God, through this time, through this journey that we've been journeying, has, made, has, has taken to the task of making all things new for us. The things that our sin had wrecked, the thing that our rebellion had destroyed. God, through the power of restoration and through his Holy Spirit, has given us a newness of life in him. And when, and when Jesus called Levi, who, by the way, in this text, he instantly obeyed. I love it. It was like, it was like he was just waiting. I, I picture him like standing on the, 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 the start line of, of a race. And Jesus said, Come follow me. It was like the, the starter's gun being fired, and man, boom, Levi was gone, and he was after it, and he never, he never looked back according to what the Bible tells us. He obeyed the call of Jesus instantly, and he left everything behind to follow Jesus. And, he, and in doing so, Jesus, when he called Levi, and Levi responded in this way, Jesus accomplished three things, the same things that he accomplishes in all of the lives of those who, who he um, calls. And first of all, in that, Jesus saved a lost soul. Matthew, make no mistake, as was us before we gave our lives to Christ, our path was headed towards an eternal, an eternal damnation, a judgment, a great judgment, one that we could not bear. When Jesus saved us, he called us out of that. He saved our soul. But he also, he also added a new disciple to his clan. And the same with us. We've been brought into the family. It says that we've been adopted. And adoption's a wonderful thing. You know, when, you're, when your kids are born to you, you're kind of stuck with them. You can't choose them. <laughs> but in this, in this adoption idea of things, God looked at us and he said, I want you. I choose you. And with Matthew, he did that. With Levi, he did that. He brought him into his clan. He made him a disciple. And, and lastly, the cool thing about this, and we should be looking for this to be taking place in our own life as well. last thing that Jesus accomplished is, he, is by, saving, by saving Levi, he created an opportunity to explain to Levi's friends, as well as the scribes and the Pharisees, who were totally offended by Jesus at this time. He had the opportunity to, to um, explain 
what he had done for Matthew to them, for Levi. And, and, and God wants to use our lives as an opportunity to explain what he wants to do for them by sharing what he's done for us. And that's really what we're kind of reading about as we go on, is Jesus taking this opportunity to teach Matthew's friends, to teach Levi's friends, to teach the scribes and the Pharisees once again about the awesome, wonderful thing that he had done for him and what he wanted to do for them. Now, I want to clarify some things and just kind of get some, some context as we go on. Now, Matthew being a tax collector, um, or, or, or being a tax collector, Levi, who is also Matthew, you guys know that, and so I keep interchanging the names, but just to give some clarity there, I'm not talking about two people, I'm talking about one. Um, uh, being a tax collector, it was Levi's job to, to, to sit in a toll booth, and, and, and as, as, as commerce took place, as goods came in and out of the cities at this time, there would be a tax collector who would sit at a toll booth and put a charge, a, a charge of tax on all the merchandise that was brought in and out of the city. And since tax rakes at this time, because the Roman government was corrupt and um, these governors who overseen these different regions corrupt, um, the tax rate were not always, it was not always a clear thing, um, much like today. And uh, it was easy for a dishonest man in, Matthew, in Levi's position to make extra money for himself by collecting more than he was supposed to. And so when he would turn over the taxes, the extra that he collected, he would, he would keep to, 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 to make himself rich. But even if a tax collector served honestly in this situation like Levi possibly did, the Jews, the Jews despised the tax collectors. Um, for defiling themselves by going to work for the Gentiles, for these Roman oppressors. And even though no one liked paying taxes, especially the Jews to their Roman oppressors, if you remember from, from the beginning of when we were studying back through the book of, uh, beginning of this book, John the Baptist had made it clear back in chapter 3, and you can look there again in verses 12 and 13, he made it clear that there, was, there is and was nothing innately sinful about collecting taxes. And in regards to Levi, who was so overjoyed, man, Levi was so overjoyed at his salvation experience that, that in, in regards to that, he invited his friends. He invited his friends over to rejoice with him by throwing a feast for Jesus. And in regards to this situation, I want to point out that there's no evidence that Levi, that he was a thief who collected more than he was supposed to. Now, I hear some people automatically put Levi in that category, but the truth is, biblically speaking, we're not told that. We're not told that about him. Nevertheless, even though we do not know that about him, to the Jews, as we go forward, what we'll see to the religious leaders, Levi was a sinner who felt under their con- or fell under their condemnation. And, and, and Jesus, in this situation that we're going to read about, that we have read about, Jesus was looked down upon these self-righteous and, um, and, and, and um, legalistic religious leaders. He was looked down upon for having anything to do with Levi, anything to do with his sinner friends, these who would make deals with the Gentiles. And these scribes and the Pharisees, they criticized Jesus because they did not understand this they didn't understand his message of God's grace of God's forgiveness of God's love they didn't understand the message or his ministry 
Furthermore, Jesus simply, as we know, he didn't fit into their traditional religious ways of life. And I love that. But in order to help them understand Jesus, in order to help them understand his message, his ministry, and help them understand what he had done for Levi, Jesus gave four illustrations in the remaining verses of chapter 3, starting here, or excuse me, of of chapter 5, starting here in verse 31, with this first illustration of the physician. So if you will follow along as I read, it says this, it says, Jesus answered and said to them, Okay, to these, to these Pharisees, to these tax collectors who, in verse 30, ask this question, why? Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And so it says in verse 31, Jesus answered and said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have, come to call the right, not, I have, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Then, verse 33, it says, They said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees? But yours eat and drink. In other words, what's all this celebrating about? What's all this this partying about that's going on? And Jesus said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. And then, verse 36, he spoke a parable to them, saying, No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one, otherwise the new garment makes a tear. But also, the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst. The wineskins will be spoiled and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says, the old is better. All right, let's, let's go back to the beginning here in verse 31. And I want to illustrate, I want to point out that the scribes and the Pharisees, we need to understand that, that in this situation, in this moment, they saw Levi and his friends as condemned. Those who were beyond hope. Those who were beyond saving. They were sinners, right? But Jesus saw them as sick patients who needed the help of a physician. And Jesus had illustrated how he saw people. He had illustrated this in, how, in regards to how he saw people in, in, in the things that we read about last week in regards to him clean, uh, cleansing the, the, the leper, the untouchable. Remember when, when the leper said, if you're willing, Jesus said, I'm willing. He reached out his hand and he touched the leper, this one who was unclean, this one who had been defiled, and he cleansed him. And also we know that, that Jesus exampled this this. this desire to come and heal those who are spiritually sick as he, as he forgave the sins of the paralyzed man. He called out and said, your sins are forgiven when he was being lowered through the roof by his friends. But even more so, we know that, that, took, that this additionally took place when Jesus healed the paralyzed man as an evidence to the fact that he had the power, the authority to forgive sin, to heal sin. And sin... We talked about it last week a little bit. It's like a disease because it starts small in a hidden way on the inside. 
It starts small in a hidden way. It grows secretly. It saps our strength. And if it's not cured, sin, it kills. And in light of this, we need to understand. In light of this, we need to see. We need to understand that the first step towards healing the sickness of sin is admitting that we have a need and that we must do something about it. This is what the Pharisees were unwilling to do in their pride, in their self-righteousness. And in light of this, we need to understand that, 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 um, the, the, um, the, <laughs> the healing of the sickness, it, it's, a, it's this admission that we have a need, but it's also this understanding that we need to do something about it. There's an action that needs to be taken. However, the only something that we can do is to come to Jesus, is to immediately follow after him like, like Levi, because he's the only one who can heal us of the sickness of sin that we all have. And the cool thing about it is Jesus is a wonderful physician for many reasons. I'll point out a few. He's a wonderful physician because he comes to us in love. He's a wonderful physician because he invites us to come and follow after him. He's a a wonderful physician because he saves us when we trust in him. And he's a wonderful physician because he even pays the bill. Furthermore, his diagnosis is always accurate and his cure is always perfect and complete. And Levi, who was spiritually healed, Levi who was given this new life that we've been talking about, and also the new name of Matthew, which I've referred to, which literally means a gift from God, was so overjoyed that he wanted to share this good news message with his friends. Consequently, this celebration that followed appears to have offended once again these self-righteous Pharisees who continued to challenge Jesus um, by asking him in verse 33, and we can hear their indignation when they say, why is his disciples, why, I asked him why his disciples, in verse 33, were always celebrating. Why are you always celebrating and not fasting and praying like really mature spiritual people do? And there, there is maturity in fasting and praying, but walking around like you've eaten a lemon is, is not the way that Christ calls us to be. And, and this, is what they were, this is what they were indignant about. And in answering them, Jesus gives us the second illustration. He used a second illustration, one of the, of the Jewish wedding feasts, which was a time of great joy. It was a time of great celebration. And I wish we, we celebrated like this at our own weddings because they lasted for a whole week. Seven days of celebrating. Seven days of feasting and partying and joy and dancing and music. And, 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 and so by using this imagery, this image of the wedding, as alongside the bridegroom whom Jesus said he was, he, Jesus was simply saying that he, being the bridegroom, he had come to make our new lives in him a wedding feast and not a funeral. And, and if, we, if we know the bridegroom, then we can share in his joy. The joy of salvation, the joy of new life with him as old things have been passed away and all things have been made new. This joining together with the bridegroom has given us this new life. And in verses 36 through 39, Jesus goes on to reinforce this, he says, with a parable, which is an earthly illustration to reveal spiritual truth. And he went on to reinforce this, with this through this parable with two additional illustrations, with the illustration of, of an old and new garment. 
And, and by doing so, Jesus was pointing out that he, and I, and I love this because there's a passage of Scripture that talks about that when Christ came to us, he saw that our hearts were hearts of stone, hard, rebellious. But yet what God does is he does open heart surgery and he takes that old heart of stone out and he gives us a new heart of flesh. And, and in doing that, in comparison to what we're talking about, Jesus was pointing out that he just didn't come to patch up the old. He came to give us brand new. And when we consider this in light of the Pharisees who were challenging Jesus, this statement that Jesus had made was a radical one. Now think about it. You're, the, you're a Pharisee. You're, you're a scribe. You are the authority of the laws of Moses. Moses, you study the word. You live by the word. As a matter of fact, you make additional laws so that you don't break the laws that you've been given. This is your life. This is your faith. This is your hope. And your life is ultimately and utterly completely devoted to it in such a public way that everybody knows there you are by the robes you wear, the food you eat. And when we consider this in the light of the Pharisees who were challenging Jesus in the statement that Jesus had made, we see the radicalness of what Jesus said because these religious leaders at this time by what Jesus was saying, they were unwilling to admit that their faith, their religion, their belief system, Judaism, was not all that it could be. And perhaps they even hoped that Jesus would be working with them in reviving their old ways, their old religious ways. But Jesus revealed, he showed the foolishness of, the, of, this, of this approach by, by, by contrasting the two garments, the, the old one and the new one, saying that if, if a person takes a patch from a new piece of cloth, from a new garment, he sews it onto old one, he says both garments are going to be ruined as the patch doesn't match. And because the patch doesn't match, it'll tear away. The garment will fail. The, the patch will fail when the garment is washed, when it's tested. Sadly, as was the case for myself before I came to Christ, and maybe you too, but we see it today even more so and more so with this eclectic gathering together of beliefs that people use to form their own religion, their own faith, a little bit of here, a little bit of there, whatever makes me feel good, whatever, whatever leads me to the place where I want to go, creating God in their own image. Sadly, many people today have this very, what, what I would like to call a patchwork of religion. A patchwork of religion of their own making and do so because they ultimately, like these Pharisees, refuse to trust in Jesus for the robe of salvation that he promises to give to us by his grace. Now, the, 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 the final illustration, the fourth and final illustration of the wineskin, was also being used by Jesus to reveal why the old things had to go and the new things needed to come. And this is the root of it. This is the core of it. Because remember, God's not, God cares about the outward things, the way we live in our lives as, as we interact with others. But, but ultimately, God's primarily concerned about what takes place on the inside, right? It's not just about an outward patchwork of, uh, 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 that, that, that will fail. It, it's also inward. There's got to be this new thing that goes on in the inside. And this final illustration of the wineskin that was also being used with Jesus was used to reveal why the old things had to go and, 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 and new things needed to come. In regards to wineskin, maybe not so much for us because 
I've never even seen a wineskin, but much less have put wine in one or taken one out. Today we, we get them in bottles. But in regards to, to, to <laughs> childhood memory, just keep going. And <laughs> come in and go out. In regards to wineskins, it was common knowledge at this time that if you were to take an old wineskin and fill it with new wineskin, something that Jesus is speaking again to his, to, his, to his audience in a way that they could relate to, if, if they all knew that if you put the new wineskin in the old wine, that the, new, that the gases, the, the carbon dioxide gases from the new wine, as it still continued to, to ferment and age that, that were being released, it would cause the old wineskin to, to, to burst, to break, to split, to stretch beyond what it could do, and the new wine that had been put in it would be lost. And by this, we see how Jesus once again revealing, listen, he once again was revealing ultimately that the, the, the Jewish religion was, was, was old and that it would soon be replaced. For it would no longer, and it was a good thing, it's a great thing, for, for no longer would it be the law and the sacrificial system that would God guide God's people. It would be, soon from this point, it would be the Holy Spirit. It would be the Holy Spirit who would indwell them, come inside of them, and cause them, as it says in the book of, the, uh, of Joel and in the book of Jeremiah, and in a prophetic way, speaking to this time and to this event, that, it, that the Holy Spirit would come in them and indwell them and cause them to walk in God's ways as God would write His law upon their hearts and equip them, enable them to be able to walk in His ways. New on the inside. That God would cause them to walk in his ways, and for that to be possible, they needed to become new vessels. They needed to become new creations. New on the inside. A newness of life. Now, as we move on into chapter 6, Luke's going to record um, a couple of different encounters that Jesus had with the Pharisees. The same Pharisees, probably the exact same ones who clearly had their own opinions about who Jesus is. And if you've ever talked to someone who's not a Christian, I think all of us have, if you ever talked to someone who's not a Christian about Jesus, you know that there's a lot of different opinions out there, right? A lot of different opinions about who Jesus is, a lot of different opinions about what Jesus said, and a lot of different opinions even about what Jesus did. But most of these people that I've talked to and maybe you too have seen this, they base their opinions upon what someone else has told them. They've come to their conclusions on what someone about Jesus based upon what someone else has told them rather than what, than what the Bible says. They've not checked it out for themselves or, or, or about what Jesus himself said. Consequently, what they assume to be true is, is very often and, and most often um, Far from the truth. In light of this, I want to point this out. This is very important to key, to key into as we go forward because in light of this, we should realize that whether it's here together as we read and study God's Word or when we're doing the, the reading and study of God's Word on our own, when we do this and we see what Jesus said and did, we need to understand that we are in an ongoing process of refinement. And what I mean by that is, is we're in an ongoing process of having our own opinions. Who's got opinions? 
Yeah, Jacob does, I know, I've talked to him. We have, we, we're in this ongoing process of having our, our own opinions, our own perceptions, and our own beliefs changed as we come to know the truth. In our home group, I was sharing with our home group a few weeks ago that I was raised in the Catholic Church. I went to Catholic school until I got kicked out. Um, I had to go to public school. Um, but I had certain ideas. I had a certain belief system as a result of that. And then I spent many years not going to any church at all, formulating some of my adult opinions about Jesus, God, the Bible, and, and, and having a faith, not a saving faith, uh, more of a pagan faith in, in the things that I come to believe. And I, I referred to that as my baggage. You know, today we have, back then we didn't have bags on wheels. You had to carry your luggage around. Now you got, you got bags on wheels. And, 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 and we all come to this this relationship with Jesus Christ, with these bags, these opinions, these perceptions, and these beliefs. But as we read and study God's Word, we have to be willing to allow these bags of our opinions and our perceptions and our beliefs to be emptied and filled with the truth. And I point this out because if we're unwilling, if we're unwilling to set aside our opinions, the things that we believed our perceptions for what the Bible teaches us is truth, guys, we're going to end up missing out. We talk about wanting more of Jesus, needing more of Jesus, having more of Jesus. If we're unwilling to allow the truth to be poured in and, the, and, and, and our, our, our misperceptions, our opinions to be poured out, we're going to miss out on knowing Jesus in an experiential way like what we read here taking place with so many people and how God wants to interact with us. We're going to miss out on the blessings and the gifts that come as a result of knowing Jesus. And here in this next chapter, chapter 6, Luke continues to document the things that Jesus did, the things that Jesus said. And in doing so, it's further revealed to us, Jesus is, is, Jesus, um, um, is revealed to us more and more. And in this chapter, we see this. There's, there's some several things that we're going to see. I'm going to outline them. I, I don't know how, how many we're going to get to today, but we'll get to all of them in time. And what we're going to see is we're going to see this. First of all, we're going to see that Jesus is the Lord. By what we read here and what Jesus said was being revealed to us, we're going to see that Jesus is the Lord. And I know we know that, but lots of times we don't allow Him to be the Lord of our life. And why? It's because we got things in our bags that Jesus reveals to us over and over again that He's the Lord. And in doing so, He says, Get that stuff out, put the truth in, and let me be the Lord of this part of your life. We're also going to see that He's the compassionate healer. He's a compassionate healer. We're going to see that He's the master. And we're going to see that he's the teacher. So look with me in verse 1 of chapter 6. It says, Now, it happened on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through grain fields and his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to him, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? But Jesus answering them said, have you not even read this, that David, speaking of King David, 
Have you not even read this, what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread, and also gave some to those with him, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat? And Jesus said, and he said to them, here it is, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord overall. And at this point in Jesus' ministry, we can see that the religious leaders were seeking to oppose Jesus. They weren't, they weren't just coming to learn, to figure out who he was, what he was about. They've already formulated their, 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 their position, their beliefs about Jesus at this point. Their bags are full, and, and they know better than anybody else, and now they're in opposition to Jesus because of who they believe him to be. And they do this, they've done this, even though, even though they had been, been challenged by the things that Jesus had said and done. Over and over and over again. And through that, Christ was attempting to pour truth into them. Yet because they were unwilling to humble themselves, it's all about humility, isn't it? Because they were unwilling to humble themselves and turn away from their pride and from their self-righteous ways and beliefs, they resisted the truth and ultimately they opposed Jesus. And at this time, we see clearly that they were following Jesus, but it wasn't because they wanted to be his disciples, right? It was to try and find some fault with him so that they might condemn him, expose him as a, a false prophet, a fake, a fake, or a fraud to the people. And in these first five verses, we're told that as Jesus walked with his disciples, you can picture it in your mind through a grain field. Grew up in eastern Washington, and there's many of those in that dry land wheat farming. They were walking through the open field, the grain field. As they were doing so, they were picking some of the heads of grain, and they, and they were then rubbing them between their hands and, and eating the grain that broke free from the chaff. And, and this is what, this is what, and I get this, this, that act, that thing, this is what gave the self-righteous Pharisees their next opportunity to demonstrate their opposition to Jesus. In their mind, they had caught Jesus' disciples in the, in the act, red-handed, of doing something that was forbidden. And they demonstrated their opposition to Jesus as they, as they in verse 2, they questioned. They questioned what Jesus' disciples were doing and accused them of breaking the Sabbath laws. And consequently, this was, this, was no, this was no laughing matter. This was no little thing in regards to the laws of Moses. Because if a person did break the Sabbath laws, they were to be put to death. That was the punishment for not keeping the Sabbath. Death. And in Exodus chapter 31, if you remember when we studied from the book of Exodus, in verses 14 through 15, it says this, it tells us this, or it says, You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you, and everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does not work, for whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath, he 
shall surely be put to death. Pretty clear, right? And from the Pharisees' point of view, they're, they're probably looking for stones to pick up. If Jesus doesn't give a good answer, they're going to take care of business. Apparently, these religious leaders considered what Jesus' disciples had done to be an act of work, a violation of the law. However, what they had done to feed themselves was not a violation of God's law. It was only a violation of one of the man-made laws that had been established by the religious leaders. Not these guys specifically, but Pharisees and scribes like them after, their, after Israel was returned to the land about 500 years before this. When the, after being set free from, from Babylonian captivity, the Jews came back and they made this pact, the law. We're going to be keeping the law. And in doing so, the, the religious leaders down through time, the scribes, the Pharisees, um, um, they, they had compiled uh, 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 writings, a collections of writings that ended up being and is today still 6,200 pages long. It's called the Talmud. And in these writings, there are a total of, of their, 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 their rules and regulations that have been put forth to keep, in their mind, keep a person safe from breaking the law. Laws for the laws. And more laws for those laws. And then more laws for those laws so that you don't ultimately break the law that was to protect you from breaking the law, is protect you from breaking the law, and ultimately from breaking the law of God. It sounds a little bit like the government that we have today, to tell you the truth. Man's wisdom leads that way. And that's not meant as a political statement. It's just the foolishness of men in our own heart. And we do the same thing. We put up these boundaries, these laws, these things we think to protect us. And where we don't do this and we won't do that. Rather than reminding ourselves that we're new creations with a new heart who's had the Holy Spirit of God put inside of us, where God says, if you walk in my spirit, if you lean upon me, that I will not only write my laws upon your heart, that you're going to have the freedom to live your life as you follow me because I will cause you, I will enable you to keep my commands, to walk in all my ways. God says he'll do that for us. We don't need a book of 6,200 pages long, writings that, that, I, that tell us for, for the, the to-dos and the, and the what-not-to-dos. And, and, and in regards to the Sabbath, you can go and look it up for yourself. Just for the Sabbath law, there was an additional 39 specific acts that, that had been strictly forbidden to be done on the Sabbath as fences or as, as protection from breaking the Sabbath. But none of these forbidden acts, and we, we sign forbidden acts for ourselves too, things that God's never placed upon us or that man's put upon us. And guys, live free from that. Live in the grace of God. It's more than enough to sustain you. And there's joy in that place. But when you're living under the forbidden acts, it's burdensome. And see, none of these forbidden acts, none of these 39 forbidden acts were what God had commanded when he gave the law to keep the Sabbath day holy. And to point out that his disciples, Jesus, in order to point out that his disciples hadn't broke any of the Sabbath laws of God, 
that he had established, Jesus used this example. He's this example of King David and, and, and of Abiathar the priest to defend what they had done. In doing so, Jesus asked them in verse 3, and he said this. I love this. Have you not even read this? Maybe Jesus is being a little sarcastic, maybe a little flippant. Um, uh, <laughs> and the fact that Jesus addressed them like this, really, before I get too far off track, it, it points out two important things. The first is that Jesus didn't argue with them philosophically, Right? Jesus did not argue or make his argument from a philosophical point of view. He could have, God, right, in the flesh. Rather, what did he do? He took them to God's word. Why? Because God's word is a spiritual weapon. A spiritual weapon that promises to not return void when it is sent out. It alone has the power to change the hearts and minds of an individual. And the point is, only God's Word has the power to penetrate into the heart. God's Word is the only thing that has the power to reveal truth, to empty the bags, to bring forth a change in our thinking, in the way that we live. So it's always important to point people to what God's Word says, to what the Word of God says, and not to what we think or what we believe. Now, when we stop to think about what Jesus was asking um, uh, about what we stop to think about Jesus asking this question, this question, have you not even read this, what David did when he was hungry? When he, when he asked this question, we stop to think that he had asked it to the Pharisees, right? The religious leaders, the experts, that's who this was. These guys, these guys were students of God's word. And when we, we ask, we think, why, did, why would Jesus ask them? It, it seems a little ridiculous, especially in light of the fact, one of the things that I came across is the, the Pharisees, prided themselves, boasted in their knowledge of God's Word. So much so, I found this out, that, that they even knew in their, their time of study how many of each letter of the Hebrew alphabet was in the Old Testament. That's how intimately know this. So, so the answer to Jesus' question, if they would have been given a chance to, to answer, it would have been like, yes, we've read this. Right? They knew the story. They read it. That's why Jesus was asking them. But the fact of the matter, guys, you think about how can, how can, how can someone know but not know? My wife and I say this. We've said this for years about our kids when they've come to us. You think you know, but you don't know. And it's true. They think they know. But we, but, but we can as well. We can be in this. We can have this pharisaical attitude. We've got to be so careful. Because the fact of the matter is, even though they knew God's word better than anyone else, oh man, they had missed the very essence of its meaning. So much of the church does this today. We can be guilty of this in our pride and our self-righteousness. See, they had read it. They knew it, the Pharisees. Yet they were spiritually blinded by their pride, by their self-righteousness, and they did not understand what God's word was saying. And Jesus directly referred to this very same problem when he said in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 13 15, he said this, he says, Therefore, I speak to them in parables. For this reason, he says, I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. 
And really what this goes back to is, is having a teachable spirit in humility, being willing to have your bags, my bags, our opinions, our perceptions, our beliefs refined and burned away so that the truth of God's word can come in and fill our hearts and minds and, and continue to change our lives. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them, he says, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, hearing you will hear and shall not understand. And seeing you will see and not perceive. That's a scary thing. Because it is. When you think you know, what do you do? You think you know. The Bible says a little different like this. It says there's a way that seems right to a man, but it's in is death. And you've heard me say it. When you think that you're on the right way, you think you're on the right way. And that's why the Bible says that we don't even know our own hearts. We don't even know what's in it. And it takes coming to God's Word. It takes being around other believers who, are, who you allow and who are willing to speak into your life to go, you know what? That might not be right. Check it out. See what it has to say. Receive it. Be teachable. Because we don't want to be a fulfillment of the prophecy Isaiah, which says, hearing you will hear and you shall not understand, and seeing you will not see and not perceive. Why? For the hearts of the people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes have closed. And guys, in regards to our own spiritual walk, we cannot forget that it's a dangerous thing to know God's word. It's a dangerous thing to know God's word and because of pride, self-righteousness. I've been a Christian for 25 years now. I've read the Bible 15 times from front to back. You know, and we may not confess that outwardly, but we can surely adopt that inwardly very quickly. And then ultimately what we do is we mimic the Pharisees where we stand at the door of our own church and we condemn people as sinners rather than seeing that they are in need of a physician to be healed from the same spiritual sickness that God's healing us from. How sad. It's a dangerous thing to know God's word and because of pride and self-righteousness miss out on the very essence of it. In other words, 2 Timothy chapter 3 he says it like this, Paul writing, he says, in other words, to, to, to be always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, this account that Jesus is asking the Pharisees if they had ever read, I, I laugh, I chuckle every time I read that, and this, this, this account that Jesus is asking the Pharisees if they had ever read about, have you not, have you not read about David? Right? It's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Go read the story. It's really cool. And in this passage, it tells us that David had approached Abiathar the priest, and he had asked for food. He had asked for bread, provisions in a time of need when he was fleeing from King Saul who was trying to kill him. However, the only food that the priest had that was available was the showbread, which is really a sad testament to the state of the priesthood and the spiritual state of the people of Hebrew, of Israel at that time. Why? Because they were to provide for the priests through their tithes, through their offerings, through the sacrifices. And, and the priest, someone come to me and says, we have nothing, David. 
We barely have enough for the showbread to, to, to put before God in the temple, in the tabernacle. And, and, and nevertheless, Abiathar says, it's all we have. We, we, the showbread was a consecrated bread that only the priests were allowed to eat. It was holy. God had written in his law, this is what you're to do with it, this is how you're to make it, and it's to be eaten only by the priests, and it's to be replaced on a regular basis. Yet what we read in that account is that David was given the bread. He was given the bread by Abiathar. And by referencing this event, by Jesus, by referencing this event, um, the comparison that he was making was clear. In that, when, when it came to the issue of David's need, David's survival, right? The law was set aside. An exception was made. In short, this is, what, this is what it all comes down to. It comes back to, to, to what, what Jesus said to his disciples. We were reading this in, in our study of Mark, just in our men's group on, on, on uh, Friday mornings. By the way, I was going to tell you, we also have a men's group on Thursday nights at 7 for the rest of the men if you guys want to come weekly. But we were reading about this from where, where the, one of the, the, the scribes of Pharisees came to Jesus and said, you know, what's the greatest of all the commands? And he said, love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Love, right? And, and I point that out because what Jesus was pointing out is this exception was made by the high priest in regards to the law. In short, love is the key to the law of God. And if the law of God is used at the expense of love, then it's not being applied correctly. It's being applied incorrectly. Think about that in our own lives because sometimes we can adhere to the law in regards to people and their needs and certain things. And, and, and if love is excluded from that, then you better revisit your interpretation of the application of that law and check your heart. Check my heart. Love's the key. And if it's used at the expense of, if, it's, if the law is used at the expense of love, then it's not being applied correctly. And in light of this point, Jesus was not, hear me, Jesus was not suggesting that the Sabbath law of God should be set aside on his behalf or on behalf of his disciples. However, he was boldly declaring, make no doubt about it, he was boldly declaring that he and his disciples who were eating out of a need were above the burdensome and of an unloving man-made laws that Condemned people, which the Pharisees had referred to in the 6,200 pages of the Talmud. And the reason why Jesus said that he, the Son of Man, listen, that he, the Son of Man, is also the Lord of the Sabbath, he said this to, because he was pointing out this. He says, he says, really, he says, doesn't matter anyway. He says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. <laughs> Talk about getting the Pharisees riled up there. That would have for sure. Because what he's saying, he says, you know what, I'm the king. And, and I'm not restricted by your traditions. I'm the king. King of kings. He, he pulled, the, he pulled the, the trump card out, you know. And, and when Jesus made this statement, he, like he had previously done, made no mistake that, that, that when he had claimed, remember when he had claimed the authority to forgive sins? 
like he did then, he is now, was now claiming to be God. It goes back to what we were talking about. He's still, Jesus, in the midst of being condemned by the Pharisees, he's still pouring truth and love into them. I'm God, guys. Empty out your bag. Let me pour truth in. I want you to know me. I want you to experience me. He's claiming to be God because God is the one who established the Sabbath, right? On the seventh day, God rested. And if Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, people who say, say that Jesus isn't God and Jesus never claimed to be God, that's not true at all. That's an opinion. That's a belief. That's an assumption. And when you study God's word in context over and over and over again, Jesus kept saying, I'm God. I'm God. I'm him. And I've come to save you. I've come to love you. Because going back to this, God is the one who established Sabbath, and if Jesus is the Lord of Sabbath, that means he's free, right? If you're the Lord of it, if it's yours, you're free to do on it whatever you want and do with it whatever you please. Especially to violate. Now, God, Jesus never violated any of the commands of God. It's not in him. It's not possible. But he did bring this forth in order to validate his violation of the tradition of men's of men, these, the, these Pharisees, the religious leaders, that ultimately took a good thing of God, right? That's what man does. That's what really religion does in the, in the um, not good sense, <laughs> is, is it, it takes a good thing of God, a day of rest, a good thing of God, and turn it into something burdensome. Burdensome. A day of rules, a day of regulations that did not even make any exception for a person in their time of need. Something that puts people into religious bondage, the very thing that God came to also set us free from. But what the religious leaders had done with all of their forbidden acts, back to this little phrase. You know, we should all be challenged, I think, this morning as I am even standing here. I need to go. I need, to, I need to walk more in faith in regards to these forbidden acts and allow God to show me what forbidden act have I put upon myself that God never put me under? Where he says, I, just, I came to save you, to give you grace so that you can live free from these burdensome things. Why are you chaining yourself back up? Why do we do this? And when we do it, guys, don't be mistaken, it's not something that we keep upon ourselves because when we do this and it's not something from God, you know what the human nature does? My nature, I begin, you begin, we all begin to look at others and go, (gasps) right? We begin to look at other people without grace, without love, and we bring them under the same condemnation that we put upon ourselves, and it's sick. There's no life in that. And I believe it breaks the heart of God when it happens. In light of this, we, never, we can never forget that it's, it's not the list and the rules and the regulations. That's not what makes us holy and acceptable to God. Right? In light of this, we, need, we must never forget that when we put our faith in Jesus and enter into a personal relationship with him, we become 100% acceptable for all time 
in eternity, 100% acceptable to God. And when we are in a relationship with Jesus, guys, it's never a burdensome thing. I'm going to end with this. The worship team wants to come up. This is why Jesus said this. He said, he said in Matthew chapter 11, please hear this, verses 28 through 30, he says, Come to me, all you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Also in 1 John chapter 5, verses 1-3, through 3, it reminds us of this very awesome, same wonderful thing. Man, I just want to learn to live more in the grace of God in that place. That's where joy is at. That's where peace is found. Freedom. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. And by this we know that the love of the children of God By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. Let's pray. Lord, help us to see that truth again this morning. And Lord, if we feel that way about what You've called us to do, God, show us why. Is it because we put additional rules and regulations, forbidden acts upon ourselves? Or Lord, as we have we allowed our own heart to condemn us or the lies of the enemy to speak untruths to us about the way that you see us, about who you say we are in you. I pray, God, that again a great healing would take place over our our church, over this family here, and setting us free from these things that that um, ultimately God keep us apart from your love. Not that you keep it apart, but we we distance ourselves from it. Lord, let us enter deeper into your love and receive all that you have for us. God, may there be such great joy on our faces and in our hearts, Lord, that we go from this place celebrating and inviting people in the world to come celebrate with us like Levi did with his friends. Lord, may you make and use our lives as a living testimony of your great love for us and for others, through us, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. You guys stand.